Thanks, Thad. And uh, good job, Awana guys, and Dallary, and Josh, and all of our Awana leaders. Uh, good morning to you. Happy uh, almost spring, and nice to see you. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to worship today with you. And uh, Noe, thanks for leading us in worship. And thanks for, I don't know if we call you a band or what we call you guys, but beautiful job. Thanks. Uh, that's one of the reasons we come together. We come to give God worship and praise every time we gather together. And I noticed a couple of our songs were about Jesus, the Lamb of God. And if uh, you know, you're the first, you know, you're new to Christianity, you're like, well, what are we singing about? What's Jesus? How's he a lamb? And, and uh, John the Baptist, he called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's why we worship Jesus the Lamb, because in his death and resurrection, he takes away the sin of the world. And so that's what we're uh, celebrating and worshiping when we worship Jesus the Lamb. And we have a great opportunity to do that in just a few weeks. Uh, Easter, Resurrection Day, that is only about a month away. Easter is on the uh, 16th, April 16th, so really just about a month from now. And uh, excited about that because Easter is one of those times in our uh, life as a church when we all mobilize and do our best to uh, present the good news of who Jesus is and how he can change lives. So Easter Sunday, with about a month to go, we've got a lot of mobilizing to do and really excited about that. And uh, we're going to have our three normal worship services, three worship service times. So we have an extra worship service time on Easter Sunday, but then we're going to do something different in our middle service. So three worship service times. In our middle service, we're, we're going to have uh, two worship options, two worship options, one of them here in the auditorium, another one in the youth room where Michael Lubin is going to be leading in a kind of a cafe-style acoustic uh, worship. So we're going to have two worship options in our middle service, and you'll be able to choose. You'll be able to bring a friend to one or the other, and then uh, the message will be the same message, just on, on a video screen instead of live. And uh, we're excited about that. We've never done that before. It's going to be a new step. It's going to open up a whole new room for us to bring our friends to, and not just a new room, but also a different style of worship, and uh, excited about that. You'll hear a little bit more about that. We've got some uh, fun things we're going to be doing on that Sunday. It's going to be a really a great day, and uh, to make it everything it needs to be, we, we want everyone to mobilize for this, and there are really three things that we do. We pray, we pray, we bring and we serve. So kind of PBS, you know, but not public broadcasting system. Pray and bring our friends and then serve. And there are, we really need everyone to serve, find something you can do, one of those three services, at least one of those three worship services, something that you can do to serve. We have a table in the foyer, but we've got options for people who want to greet, who want to host, who want to function as like a concierge and help people find the right room. We've got opportunities for technical needs. Uh, we have opportunities for uh, food serving needs. I'm not going to tell you what special food we're going to have on that morning, but it's going to be really delicious, and we'll, we'll let you know a little bit more of that when we get just a little bit closer. So all kinds of things. We really need everyone to participate. So what we'd like to ask you to do is to visit the table in the foyer, find a way that you can serve, find a way that you can be part of this. And uh, we're shooting for 700 people on Easter Sunday, 700 unique individuals through the doors on Easter Sunday, and we're going to leave them with a message 
of how Jesus changes lives. And so I hope that you will be prepared for that. Pray and bring and serve. It's not too early to start thinking about uh, how, what you're going to be doing on Easter Sunday morning and how you're going to serve and be part of this big thing that we're going to do as we reverberate in our valley. Well, uh, this month at Trinity, we're in a series called Be Salt and Light, and we're talking about the, how to engage in our changing culture. We spent a lot of time last week talking about how our culture has changed. And, uh, uh, you know, we live in this supercharged environment, politically polarized and uh, it polarized in so many different ways. And the way that we communicate with each other, I mean, public discussion now is limited to about 140 characters, all caps. You know, I mean, that's, that's, about, the, that's about the size of our, of our uh, public discourse and about the shape of it. Very polarized. Everyone is sensitive and touchy about every possible subject. And it's just uh, it's a very unusual time to be in the United States, to be an American. It's even a more unusual time to be a, a Christian in America because in addition to this polarized, politicized environment, we have this growing gap between Christianity and the rest of our culture, this growing gap. We used to live in Jerusalem where we all shared the same kinds of values and we shared a similar vocabulary. And we even shared a common sense of uh, source of truth, like the Bible is a book to be respected and regarded, and it has important things to say about life. We used to live in Jerusalem, but last week, last week we were not in Jerusalem anymore. We live in Athens. We're not in Acts chapter 2, where basically the headquarters of biblical orthodoxy in Jerusalem. We live in Athens, in, in Greece, this marketplace of ideas and philosophies and various uh, lifestyles, and many of, them, uh, many of them very unfamiliar with Christianity, and some of them actually not just unfamiliar, but at odds with Christianity. So we don't live in Jerusalem anymore. We live in Athens, and this supercharged environment, increasingly distant from Christianity, and that's the environment that we do ministry in. That's the environment, not just that we live in, we're not just trying to live and survive in this environment, we're trying to make a difference. We're trying to show people Jesus and the life that He brings. But there's one difference between the Athens that we live in and the Athens that Paul engaged in Acts chapter 17. To the Athenians of Paul's day, Christianity was brand new. They'd never heard of Jesus. They'd never been exposed to the truth, truth of Jesus. They'd never, been, they'd never met a Jesus follower before until they met Paul. And so the, the good news was new news to the Athenians in Paul's day. But to uh, people in the United States, Christianity is not new news. The good news is old news to Americans. It's old news. We, we've heard it, and we're over it. Actually, what's happened historically, we heard it, we incorporated some of the beautiful uh, values that it brings. We love how it elevates life and elevates individual rights and, and uh, elevates the worth of every person. So we've taken parts of it, but we've rejected the core of it. And so now that we've been exposed to it, taken the parts we like and rejected the rest, we have developed an immunity 
to Christianity. We have, the United States has developed a resistance. We've been inoculated against Christianity now, so we're highly resistant to it. We've had our bad experiences with Christians and bad experiences with churches, and everybody can tell you a story about a Christian they know who's a jerk or a church they know that they, they think is awful. Everyone has one of those stories. So now we have this resistance, this immunity now against Christianity. It's not just we've never heard of it before. It's that we've heard of it, we've decided we don't like it. That's why you hear the term post-Christian to describe our culture. We are not pre-Christian. We're not non-Christian. We are actually post-Christian as a country. C.S. Lewis, who was a, a... uh, Englishman and lived in the middle of the last century, the 20th century, uh, said, he's describing Europe, so he said these words probably 60 or more years ago, but he, he was describing Europe, which is post Christian, and preceded us in our post Christianity. Uh, he used these words to describe the difference between someone who's never heard and someone who's heard and rejected. He said it's, it's like the difference, and these are his words, it's like the difference between dating a virgin and a divorcee, his words. He, think about that analogy. You buy flowers and whisper sweet nothings into the ear of one, and she melts at your romantic chivalry. You buy flowers and whisper sweet nothings into the ear of the other, and she says, yeah, right. You're going to have to do better than that. Well, who do you think we're dating as a Christian culture in the United States? We're dating the one who says, yeah, right. You're going to have to do a lot better than that. So what are we supposed to do about that? We say that we are supposed to be salt and light in our culture. That we are supposed to bring the good news of Jesus to a world that needs to hear it. And that even though our culture has changed, our job to make disciples hasn't changed. So how do you go about winning the heart of a cold, hardened, cynical woman who's been around the block more than once? How do you do that? Well, I want to share with you how to do that. At least one of the pieces. We're going to have three different pieces over the next several weeks on how it is that we do that. And the first one, the one we're going to talk about this morning, is the most important. It's the most important. It's the very first one for a reason. I think you'll see why in a minute. It's the first one for a reason. I'm going to share you what it is at the very beginning. I'm going to go ahead and give you the big idea. And then if you need to leave early, you already got the goods, okay? The big idea, it's right here in a quote that we used a couple weeks ago in a series, God's Church, Your Family. And the quote went like this. Do you remember this quote? It says, imagine a world uh, where people were skeptical of what we believed, but envious of how we treated each other. Do you remember that quote? Imagine a world where people were uh, uh, were skeptical of what we believed, but envious of how we treated each other. And that's a great quote. We talked about it during that series. But what I didn't tell you at the time is that's not the whole quote. That's not the whole quote. There's one more piece to this quote, and it goes like this. Imagine a world where people were uh, skeptical about what we believed, but envious of how we treated each other, and shocked at how we treated them. Shocked at how we treated them. 
That's the key to winning the heart of our culture with Christianity, is to shock them by our love, to love them so much that it's shocking to them. I believe that is the first piece to engaging the changing culture that we live in, to love them so much it's shocking. Now, unfortunately, our culture does not feel loved to the point of being shocked by Christians today. It's, it's much the opposite. In a book called Unchristian, Unchristian, uh, the author is a respected pollster with the Barna organization. So the Barna organization does a lot of polling and, and trying to figure out how, uh, you know, from a Christian angle, trying to figure out a lot of these things. And uh, in this book called, called Unchristian, they did research into how uh, people in their late teens to the early 30s, so people's te- people teens to 30s, and how they view Christianity. What do they think of when they think of Christians? And the results are pretty awful, actually. Uh, this is the list, six different things that they think of when they think of Christians. The first on the list is hypocritical. Number two, too focused on getting converts. Uh, number three, anti-homosexual. Number four, sheltered, too political, and judgmental. You look at that list and you're like, oh, ouch. But you're also like, yeah, but, but uh, that's not me, you know? That's not me. That's not my church. We're not those things. Well, okay, maybe we're not. But there is some truth in each of these statements. There is some truth to each of these. I can see where each of these come from. Some of them kind of justified. Some of them absolutely not. But there is truth in each of them. And even if there wasn't truth in each of them, even if each of these was blatantly false, which I would like to think they mostly are, even if they're blatantly false, hey, perception is reality. Perception's reality. So you can say, well, they just think that because of the media. And the media is always taking Christians to task and making them look like hypocrites. Or you can blame it on, uh, you can blame it on a few big mouth TV pastors or local church pastors, you know, whatever. Uh, you can blame it. You can blame it on uh, social Christians. It's because of social Christians who like the label, but they don't live the life. You can blame it on anyone you want to. It doesn't matter who you blame it on. Even if they're wrong, they're right. Because perception is reality. If this is what people think of when they think of Christianity, then we have a big challenge ahead of us. And this is not the reputation that Jesus wants his followers to have. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Jesus followed you. Those of you who follow me, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus' followers are supposed to do good deeds that are so shiny that they point to God. Paul says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Let your conversation, he means here your words, let your conversation with outsiders 
be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Peter says that wives of unbelieving husbands, Christian wives of husbands who don't believe, should live with uh, such gentleness and reverence for their, uh, uh, in their lives, lives of such gentleness and reverence that their husbands can't help but look to Jesus. And then he says of all Christians, he says that all Christians, all Jesus followers, should be prepared to share their faith with anyone, but they should do it like this. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. This is all in 1 Peter 3. But do this, share your faith with outsiders, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, not hypocritical, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. That is, act so graciously towards people who don't believe that they're embarrassed to say anything bad about you. Because it, it, it has no basis whatsoever in the truth. So imagine a world where people are skeptical of what we believe, envious of how we treat each other, shocked at how we treat them, and embarrassed to say anything negative about us because of our loving ways. That's the kind of world that Jesus calls us to create through being salt and light. And Jesus is our example because Jesus loved so much it shocked people. Jesus shocked people by the way he treated them. Take your Bibles. Open them to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is a fabulous example for us today. We're going to visit this not just today, but probably on another Sunday in either next Sunday or the following Sunday. And it's just a fabulous example. And you may already know this story and be pretty familiar with it, but it really is appropriate for the conversation that we're having right now, how to engage our changing culture. And we're going to read, we're not going to read the whole thing, but we're just, we're going to read some of this story. And it begins in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he's getting really popular. Pharisees don't like it. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea, southern part of Israel, and went up to Galilee. But on the way, verse two, 4 says, he had to go through Samaria. So Samaria's in the middle. He's going from the south to the north. He's got to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria named, called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, she said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. 
Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Trick question, right? Or trick statement. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What, you've, what you have just said is quite true. <laughs> like, understatement. I have no husband. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes on to answer her. She kind of brings up this religious diversion. So we're going to stop right there because the, the point that we want to make this morning, the thing that we want to see Jesus do, he's already done. He goes on, and there's more to learn from this passage, but... What we want to learn this morning has already taken place. Now, you know the story. Jesus uh, stops at this well, so he asks a lady for a drink of water. Big deal. Why is that in the Bible? You know, then he asks a lady for a drink of water. Well, it was a big deal because there were all kinds of barriers between Jesus and this woman. There was, first of all, this ethnic divide. Jesus was Jewish and she was Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans did not think highly of each other. There was this ethnic divide, and they just didn't get along. Now, I was thinking about my own life and thinking about, you know, I was, I was just a little kid in the 60s and kind of a teenager in the late 70s, and uh, trying to think of what the culture felt like at that time. And I don't know, in some ways, this ethnic divide has always, I mean, and you go back into, uh, obviously, the history of our country, and you have lots of racial tension. But I'll tell you what, right now, the tension and the way that uh, different groups of people in our culture are speaking about each other, I mean, you can definitely sense, and it's greater in certain parts of the country, this, this ethnic racial tension. The reason I bring that up is just to help you feel the tension between a Jew and a Samaritan at the same well. That there was this hatred, mutual hatred for each other. Jesus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Jews thought of Samaritans as half-breed, half-breeds and heretics. That's what a Samaritan was to a Jewish person. A half-breed, they're only half-Jewish, and heretics because there was another divide in addition to the ethnic divide there's this religious divide because samaritans practiced basically a distorted view a distorted version of Christ, of uh, Judaism a distorted version of Judaism and that was their religion and so you can imagine that to a jewish person who's pure and orthodox that that's that's uh that's another big problem so they've got this ethnic divide they've got this religious divide And you add to that uh, this moral divide. Because this woman is practicing a lifestyle that's very different from the one that Jesus 
is practicing and endorsing for his followers. I mean, this woman had five husbands, and she's living with man number six, not married to him. Now, that's a pretty colorful past. Do you remember the charts we looked at last week? We looked at some charts last week that shows how difficult it is for Christians, how, how, how difficult of a time Christians have engaging different groups of people in natural, normal conversations. If you were here last week, you saw that for a Christian to engage a Mormon or a Muslim or someone of uh, practicing a lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual lifestyle, that Christians are, are much less comfortable than the normal population having these conversations with people. But actually in this woman, it's like she's all these things packed into one person. There's this ethnic, religious, moral difference. And so how's Jesus going to handle this? If his followers are not comfortable talking with people who are different from them, how would Jesus talk to someone who's that different from him? I, I can imagine, maybe you could feel this too, if you can imagine someone kind of like this, a person you know who kind of has a past and maybe is a little touchy about it, especially if they know you're a Christian. For me, it's like if they know I'm a pastor. So you already, you get these vibes already from people. You know, you can feel these vibes from people with stories like this. And so can you feel the vibes that this woman has as Jesus approaches her Every Jew she's ever met hates her. And every man she's ever met has tried to take advantage of her. After all, she's got six husbands. And here comes a Jewish man. She knows what he wants. But then he just asks her for a favor. He asks her for a favor. Would you mind giving me a drink of water. Shocking. Shocking, because everyone knows Samaritans are filthy people. They're filthy. They just, they, just, they just touch a cup of water with their filthy, idolatrous fingers, and they contaminate the whole thing. Every Jew knew that. They're disgusting. But Jesus asks this disgusting person for a drink of water? Shocking. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's like, this, I've never heard this pickup line before. That's all new to me. And Jesus goes on to talk to her. He just talks to her. He treats her like a person. He doesn't treat her like a Samaritan. He doesn't talk to her like a woman. He doesn't talk to her like a disgusting sinner. He just talks to her like she were a person. How long do you think it had been since anyone had talked to this woman like she was a person? Even her own people didn't talk to her like she was a person. Do you think the women of Samaria talked to her like a real person? This woman who was on man number six? 
Do you think the men of Samaria talked to her like she was a real person since she was on man number six? I doubt that they did. But Jesus, that's what he does. He talks to her like she's a person. And she's so shocked at how Jesus treats her. She's so shocked, she listens to him. Over time, in the conversation, this gives Jesus the opportunity to share truth with her. And she ultimately puts her trust in him as the one that God sent. But notice what comes first. And the order is very important. And the order is the point I want to make this morning. That Jesus led with love and not with truth. Love is what came first. When Jesus encountered a polarized woman with every reason to be suspicious of him, he led with love. It was the first thing that he did. He shocked her by showing love. And that's the example that we need to follow if we want to reach this valley. That's the example we need to follow if we want to be an influence of salt and light in our valley and beyond. It's the model we need to follow because people have been inoculated against Christianity. They have these, we feel the vibes that they put off. Many of them have been hurt by something or someone that calls itself Christian. And they have perceptions of us, right or wrong, that we are hypocritical, judgmental, political, just interested in them as a project. The only way, the only way to get through those barriers, the only way to do that is to shock people with how much we love them. Love has to be the delivery system for any truth that we want to communicate. It's got to be the delivery system. If we want to share Jesus and how much He loves them, then we better show them a little bit of that love first. A couple reasons why. One is because love is the evidence that what we have to say is authentic and true. Love is the evidence. We've talked about this in our series, God's Church, Your Family, where we said, hey, love is God's primary trait. We need to look like Dad if we want to say we're His kids. We should have His primary trait, love. Love is what authenticates our message to the world around us. And if they don't see us loving, there's no reason that they would believe that what we have to say is true. Love is the evidence of our truth. Here's another reason. It's kind of a practical one, but it's just the way it is. Our culture doesn't speak the language of truth today. There have been times in the history of our country when uh, truth was an important idea, but right now we don't speak the language of truth. Our culture speaks the language of love. That's what we listen to. We listen to people who love. Love is love is love, right? That's, that's our culture's philosophy. 
And if we want to communicate with our culture, we will speak that language, especially since it's our Father's primary quality. And when I say speak that language, I don't mean talk about love. I mean we will show love. We will demonstrate that we love people by the way that we act, the way that we treat people. We've got to lead with love. That's got to be the first thing, the first part of our relationship with other people, love. And some people push back against this. They say, well, I guess it's okay if you love the sinner and hate the sin. Then What if we just did away with that? I don't think that phrase does what we want it to do anymore. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Because when our culture hears love the sinner, hate the sin, what they hear is we give with one hand and take away with the other. What if we just said, let's love the sinner, And what if instead of calling them the sinner, we just called them the person? Because we know that every person is a sinner. Redundant. Redundant. It's on every page of our Bibles that people are sinners. We're not going to lose that important part of our theology that people sin. We'll be reminded of that every time we read the Bible, every time we get out of bed. We'll be reminded that people sin. That's embedded in our theology. We're not going to lose that. And if you're really like, well, what about hate the sin? If you really want to hate sin, then hate your sin. Hate your sin. Hate it. And when you sufficiently hate your sin, then say to God, I hate my sin. I'm ready to hate somebody else's. And see if he gives you permission to do that. (laughs) Now, we've got to be long on love if we want to be able to share truth. That's just the reality in a cynical, truth-resistant, Christianity-resistant culture. We're going to be long on love. Shocking love. And shocking love is actually one of the reasons that from a historian's point of view, not saying from a theological point of view, but from a historian's point of view, love is one of the reasons that Christianity even exists today. Because there was a time in the decades and couple centuries after Paul preached in Athens when Christianity was just a minuscule part. One, two, three maybe 4% of the population. They were a minority religion in in the Roman world, and they were not looked upon favorably. They were actually called atheists, because that's how the people in Rome thought of Christians. The Roman world thought of Christians as atheists, because it's like, come on, people, they only believe in one God. They only believe in one God. You might as well be an atheist if you're only going to believe in one God. So they called them atheists. They didn't have a positive relationship towards Christians. But what was amazing is that these Christians, even though they're a minority part of the population, they do crazy things. They take babies off trash heaps, rescue them, and raise them as their own. Crazy. Shocking. Not only that, when Plagues come through cities. There are three big plagues in those early centuries. Three big plagues. And what happened is that when these big plagues would come into a city, everyone with any means would leave the city. They'd all leave the city. And you know who would stay? Christians would stay. 
This small percentage of the population would stay and they would care for people. And in many cases, they knew they were exchanging their life for this person's life. If I care for this person, I may may well be the next person laying on that bed. They'll be better, I'll be worse, and they probably won't care for me. But Christians cared for their own and also for pagans. And as a result... People began to pay attention to the people who loved them. And Christianity began to grow and thrive because their culture felt shocked at how much they were loved by Jesus' followers. Instead of dying, the church grew. More and more people connected to the life-giving message of Jesus, the one that God sent. Well, it's going to be the same for us. If we want to reach this valley, if we want to be an influence in our country, uh, if we really care about that, then we'll find ways to shock people with our love. And that's why as the church makes disciples, we, at Trinity, we make disciples. That's our job. But disciples go and make a difference. And as individual disciples, it's our job to show shocking love to the people in our paths, the people on our job, the people in our valley, the people we go to school with. It's our job to do that, and that's why as a church, we, we want to help set the tone for that. And so we, we want to lead the way and show love in our community. Because people need to see Trinity lead with love. If we want to reverberate in our valley... We need to, as a church, on the organized level, corporately, we've got to lead with love. I'm really proud of how our church responded to a brand new opportunity at Christmas time, Reverberate Christmas, and how we gave almost $20,000 solely to be invested in our community. And what a beautiful thing. That's exactly what it's got to look like. We have uh, a, a panel of folks who are in the final processes, I think, of uh, reviewing these imagination proposals. And I've gotten just a little bit of a peek at at some of their progress. And the proposals are going to be uh, not just things that uh, we will be able to fund, but they're also going to take people to to carry them out. Why would we bother doing that? Because we have to lead with love. Blue Ridge. Why is Blue Ridge so important? Why do we want to minister to that school? Why do we want to encourage educators in other schools? Because we want to lead with love. We want to show common grace and, and uh, watch God open the door for us to be able to share saving grace. We've got to lead with love. This summer, we're talking about some really fun things we're going to do. They're going to be fun, but they're also going to be ways of showing shocking love to our valley. So when we as a church say, hey, we want to do this, let's let's mobilize and do this, remember, the reason we want to do these things is because we want to show shocking love to the people in our valley. But it's more than just organized events on behalf of the church. If we really want to reverberate, then the most important difference we'll make is not as the church gathered, but as the church scattered. You and me as individual Jesus followers being salt and light with our neighbors, in our schools, on the job. So here's a question for all of us. Who could you show shocking love to? Who's in your path that would be shocked? Who's this person with the 
with the vibes, with the walls, and you're like, you know what? I know that person's in my path for a reason. And I'm just going to love them. And I'll, I don't, I'm not, my purpose is not going to be to shock them. My purpose is just going to be to love them, but I'm going to love them just by treating them like a real person. And that's all you did. What, what divides could you bridge by doing that? Think about that this week. You go out into your normal life and you think of those people you have political divides with. I wonder if you could shock them just by showing them love. What about the people that you have uh, an ethnic difference with, speak a different language? What if you just treated them like a real person? Crazy. What about that person that has, it, there's a big moral divide between the lifestyle you practice and the lifestyle that they practice. You know what they expect from you. Hypocritical, judgmental. You know that's what they expect. What if you showed them that's not a true Jesus follower and you treated them like a real person? More than just anonymously paying forward someone's Starbucks drink. Wait till you see me in Starbucks to do that, okay? <laughs> but for someone else, do something that treats them like a real person and let them see your good deeds and at least say, hmm, wow, that's not what I expected from that person. There's so much potential. I can't give you all the applications. You know what your life is like and who your neighbors are and who you work with, who your family members are. The only thing I'd say is take this into real life and take it onto Facebook. Take this onto all your social media. Let's let's start showing shocking love because if all we do is throw truth bombs to our culture, then we're not going to get anywhere. We've got to follow Jesus' approach. We've got to show shocking love. And that needs to be a, a primary mark of our church. Not only our love for each other, which we want people to envy, but also our love for people who are different from us, which we would love for people to find shocking. And as a result, have that open them up to the truth that we bring, which is another important part of this equation. But we've got to lead with love. Let's pray. Father, when we think about these subjects and we think about 21st century America, we reaffirm that you put us here, us, for this time. And we pray that uh, just like you worked in other eras in the history of your people, and the life of the church. And you put the right people in the right times. We're the right people for these times and this valley. And we want to be salt and light. We want to do what Jesus said, make disciples. To do that, we see that we've really got to love people. We, in some ways, have to compensate for a lot of what they've perceived from us in the past. And I pray that you help us to do that, to really be gracious, 
lavish people, secure in your love for us, so able to love people who aren't like us. And as we do that, God, that you would open hearts, melt uh, barriers, and you would allow us to be agents of grace and truth in this valley. We need a lot of wisdom. We need your help to do this. We need you to remind us in the course of a day, of a week, when we cross those paths of what we talked about this morning. So, Spirit, I pray that you'll keep these things alive in our hearts, that we'll be paying attention to ways that we can show lavish, shocking love to the people you've put in our paths. We need you to show us how to do this, and we ask for your help through Jesus. Amen.